This is part two of a message from last time. Anger is one of the most common human emotions there is. There is no one that hasn't experienced anger. We should understand, though, there are two basic classifications of anger. The first classification we mentioned last time is anger minus sin. A sinless anger. Some call this a righteous anger or a righteous indignation. Ephesians 4, verse 26 starts, Be angry, meaning it's okay, being angry, and do not sin. The statement is made that sometimes we're supposed to be angered, but that anger is not to contain sin. In part one, we address that form of anger. Notice the definition on the note sheet. Anger minus sin, this sinless anger, is when someone is angered because God is defamed in a direct sense through his person, or God is defamed in an indirect sense through disregarding his word, meaning disregarding what God has said. Each time recorded in the Gospels, that Jesus was angered, it was because God had been defamed and or maligned in some sense. Jesus wasn't angered because someone offended him or because someone had gotten something he felt he deserved. No, this sinless anger is a selfless anger. It isn't defensive and it isn't resentful. Someone that cannot get angry in this sense, as Jesus did, has a serious problem. As sometimes this form of anger is the most appropriate emotional reaction, as it was after 9-11. Next Saturday, as a nation, we commemorate the 20th anniversary of 9-11. It is inconceivable to me that someone can see the video footage of those hijacked planes crashing into the World Trade Center towers and not feel some sense of this sinless anger. That initial anger that some of us felt on that infamous date should have been a righteous anger because if we think through this, God had been defamed. God was defamed in his person because those Islamists that committed that heinous act, did that in the name of God. But that Islamic God is a false God and a counterfeit God because the true God is not a terrorist and God doesn't sponsor terrorism. That assault also defamed God in His Word because God specifically said in the Mosaic Law that we are not to commit murder. And those 19 fanatical Muslim men murdered 3,025 innocent people from 64 different nations. And even after two decades, that should still upset us. The second classification of anger is anger that includes sin. A sinful anger, an unrighteous anger, or an unrighteous indignation. Unfortunately, this is the most common anger. 
the most common form of anger that we see. Some people, though, are in total denial about demonstrating this form of anger, and the reason is because these people don't understand that someone's anger can be released in two different ways. One is that some people blow up. Some people just blow up, meaning that the energies from anger are released externally towards someone or toward something. Second is that some people clam up, meaning that the energies from anger are released internally towards oneself. That's the reason some people don't perceive themselves as being angered, because it's all stuffed on the inside. Those energies from anger are released internally. That's the reason that depression is often connected to anger. If we're suffering from significant depression, then we should probably answer the question, who or what are we angry at? Who are we angry at? What are we angry about? Because depression is sometimes just frozen rage. So we tend to release anger's energy through blowing up or clamming up, we explode or we implode, we externalize or we internalize. Using animals as analogies, that means in releasing anger's energies, we resemble a skunk or we resemble a turtle. Now this is profound, think through this. The reason is a skunk sprays his stink all over. That's an external release. And a turtle just pulls himself back into his shell. That's an internal release. I'm curious in this room, uh, who in this room most resembles a skunk? That's me. I do. Who resembles most a turtle? Okay. We have more turtles than skunks. One reason we know God has a sense of humor is that skunks are often married to turtles. <laughs> Opposites do attract. Seriously. I'm married to a turtle. She's married to a skunk. A big stinker of a skunk. Anyway. But this message is addressed to both skunks and turtles. Most of us have heard about escape rooms. Uh, where a group of people are trapped inside, you pay them money to be entrapped inside a room and have to solve puzzles in order to open the, open the exit door. We did that once, and the management had to let us out. Um, I, guess, I guess we weren't all that smart. We never did figure out all the clues. I understand there are now rage rooms. Sean Baker created this idea. Rage rooms are a place where frustrated clients can come to blow off steam using a baseball bat and some inanimate objects. This is an external release of anger's energies. Sean's business name is Tantrums LLC. And this concept is catching on. She said there are so many angry people and most of them don't know how to get rid of that anger. So clients... Uh, smash televisions using a baseball bat or golf club or lead pipe or a sledgehammer. Baker's company slogan is relaxation after devastation. A five-minute session costs $25. But experts warn that any personal satisfaction 
uh, and release gained from smashing things is just temporary. Todd Cashdan is a clinical psychology professor at George Mason University. He said he doubts that destructotherapy, that's the label, destructotherapy, is a genuinely useful form of anger management because it does not address and solve underlying issues. Uh, on a personal basis, I appreciate being able to smash stuff because it's just fun, just fun to destroy stuff. But it doesn't solve problems. I have a better and more biblical solution. There are two basic steps to anger management. Two steps to anger management. I need to interject. There's a lot we're hearing more and more about plagiarism. This is probably plagiarism. Uh, these two steps, I'm sure I wasn't bright enough to create these on my own. I'm sure I stole them, but I have nowhere, no idea where I stole them, who I stole them from. I'd love to give someone credit, but I have no idea who it is. So just want you to know I'm not that bright to come up with these steps. Okay, lay that out. All right, so forgive me. Um, step one is don't nurse it and rehearse it. Don't nurse it and rehearse it. Proverbs 29.11 A fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. I'm not sure how we know this, but an average person makes about 35,000 conscious decisions each 24-hour period, and becoming angry is one of those decisions. According to this verse we just read, it is a decision to become foolish or become wise, because a fool releases all his emotional anger. He empties himself of all that emotion, but a wise man restrains himself from becoming hyper-emotional. Personal confession, I have been foolish before. It is a false accusation to claim that you make me so mad. No, that's not true. Because in a technical sense, no one is actually able to cause us to become angry. If we're angered, it's because we decided to react to someone in anger. Becoming angry or not becoming angry is a personal decision. Ephesians 4, verse 26, uh, again, Be angry and do not sin. Then notice, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. In ancient Jewish times, sundown marked the end of one day and the start of the next day. So this means, in not permitting the sun to go down on our wrath, means that someone's anger should not continue on into the next day. Comedian Phyllis Diller had a different twist on this verse. She rephrased it as, Never go to bed mad. Stay up and fight. That's what she said. <laughs> That's not exactly what this means, I don't, I don't think. This phrase means we are not to continue in a condition of sustained and prolonged anger. Even righteous anger, even legitimate, sinless anger, if it is sustained can turn into bitterness. Physiologically, we cannot survive 
sustained periods of anger. Medical doctors have said, sometimes ulcers are not caused so much from what we eat, but from what eats us. Sustained anger is nursed anger and nurtured anger, and it is rehearsed anger because we just continue going over and over and over it. If someone's anger continues, even if it is a sinless anger, if someone's anger is sustained and prolonged, it then invariably turns into resentment, and resentment ruins interpersonal relations. Notice a statement is made in verse 27, nor give place to the devil. Sustained anger, even if it is sustained sinless anger, is permitting Satan to have access to us. And that's dangerous. Most people don't understand that anger is a symptom and not a root cause. Someone's anger is the result of three causes. If someone is angered, is it because of one of these three things? One... Uh, is that someone is hurt. Uh, someone is angered as a result of being hurt. If I'm using a hammer, and I'm not careful, and hit my thumb instead of the nail, then I'm probably upset and angry at myself, because I hurt me. If someone is manifesting a facsimile of anger, this person seems upset, and says to us, you did something, you said something that hurt me. We now know that this person is hurting. We should then want to be sympathetic to what that person wants to tell us. Understanding them being upset was the result of being hurt. And if we are the cause of that hurt, then we need to rectify that wrong. Whatever that means. If that means admission of a wrongdoing, if it means... Uh, uh, apologies, if it means uh, repentance and restitution, whatever that means, if we're responsible for the cause of that hurt. Um, if we're becoming angry ourselves, then we should stop and conduct an internal interrogation and consider the question, am I the one that's hurting here? Am I the one? If so, then address the hurt. Release the hurt instead of releasing the anger. Don't bother getting upset because that isn't going to solve the problem. Often someone is angered because that person is hurting. Second is that someone is frustrated. Frustrated. Sometimes we're frustrated because so much that happens to us is outside our control. In California, where we... Uh, moved from frustration was traffic I mean serious traffic not so much here although 395 in town is getting congested it's getting a little crazy out there uh, frustration could be sitting in the doctor's office waiting on a two o'clock appointment and it's 3:30. frustration could be a computer problem computer problems are frustrating I mean they're they bother me. They're crazy stuff. I, I'm illiterate and I don't know how to fix them. Frustration could be nervous, waiting to hear that the Caldor fire is no longer a threat and that the evacuation order has been rescinded. 
See, most of our life is outside our control. Sometimes we have the impression we're in control of a situation, but actually we never are. Basically, the only thing we control is our attitude. And in this case, how our attitude relates to how we react to situations. If we can learn to lighten up, then frustration goes down. Understand a principle. High control people tend to be high angry people. High control people tend to be high angry people. Someone that is constantly angry tends to be controlling. And someone that is controlling is often angry. So the secret is in letting go of some of the control and learning to lighten up. Now, some people um, use humor because humor helps them cope with things that are outside their control. Proverbs seventeen twenty two reads, A merry heart, some translations read, A cheerful heart, or a happy heart does good like a medicine. Laughter is therapeutic. We all understand that. Third, though, is that someone is afraid. Someone is afraid. If we corner an undomesticated animal, such as a raccoon, for example, then that animal is going to become angered, irritated, because he feels threatened and he's afraid of us. Humans are the same. If someone feels threatened, then as a protective mechanism, he's going to be afraid, and he could react in anger. COVID-19 should be respected. Uh, Coronavirus is sometimes a serious disease, sometimes a fatal disease, and it shouldn't be trivialized. But I also don't believe in COVID hysteria. Some people are so afraid of this virus that it has angered them to see people that haven't adopted the exact same COVID precautions as themselves. I have seen these terrified people literally screaming in anger at someone that wasn't wearing a mask. I believe, this is a personal opinion, which as you know is almost always right, Um, I believe... (laughs) I believe that wearing masks and the vaccination should be a personal decision. Government mandates concern me much. Much. We are becoming just like the frog in the boiling kettle. We are slowly being conditioned to accept more and more government control. We are fast moving toward a totalitarian state. And if you can't see that, I don't know where you've been. Arne Duncan, former Secretary of Education. This is a high-level cabinet position. Former Secretary of Education in the Obama administration is one of these hysterical types. He just went on social media and, get this, he compared unvaccinated people to those radical Islamic suicide bombers that murdered U.S. service members at the Cabal airport. People, that is just irresponsible. I might interject a footnote. Israel has just conducted a COVID study that included more than 700,000 Israelis. So it's not a small study. 
those scientists and medical professional people discovered that vaccinated patients that had never had the disease were 13 times, 13 times more likely to contract COVID than unvaccinated patients that had acquired immunity from earlier contracting the disease. And that would be me. It should be a personal choice. So being afraid can cause anger. But the point is that no matter what might have caused the anger, don't nurse it and don't rehearse it. But second, step two, second step in anger management is but curse it and then reverse it. Curse it and then reverse it. The curse part, the cursed part, is found in verse 31. Ephesians 4, verse 31, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Now, to curse it doesn't mean to curse as in using obscene language and profane language. No, no, no. It means to curse it as in rejecting something. There are six words related to anger mentioned in this verse that we should curse and categorically reject. Notice, Bitterness. Bitterness is a form of resentment, a grudge-filled attitude. Second is wrath, a severe, passionate rage. Third is anger. Anger, meaning different forms of displeasure. This is, don't miss this, this is unjustifiable anger. This is anger that includes sin. This is the anger we are to curse. Clamor is a loud outburst from anger. Evil speaking is ongoing slander and gossip from bitterness. And malice is a desire to cause someone harm. So these are things we are not to do. We are to curse these things. We're not to become bitter and not to become wrathful and not to become angered in the wrong sense of anger and not to clamor and not to slander and not to have malice. We aren't to do those things. Then the reverse part is found in verse 32. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Probably all of us at some time have wanted to reverse or undo something we might have done. The late comedian Jerry Lewis said that if he and his wife were having problems... He would go into his study, pull down from off the shelf the video of his wedding. He would watch it backwards and then walk out the door a free man. (laughs) Unfortunately, that is impossible. Because time is irreversible. To reverse the anger we feel means don't miss this, means to return a right for the wrong committed against us that precipitated that anger. There are three assignments in this verse that together can help us reverse that anger. The first assignment is to be kind. Kind. Notice this verse starts, and be kind to one another. We are to be kind to those people that offend us. In the Greek language, the root word that our English word kind is derived from means useful. 
useful, and that is important to understand. Most people misunderstand kindness because their concept of kindness is a smile and a nice demeanor. But kindness is more than a disposition. It is the practice of a useful deed. It is a deed, an act, we do for someone else. If someone does something bad and offensive toward us, then we should reverse that and do something beneficial and good toward them. Dr. David Jeremiah, I often uh, mention this from the real Shadow Mountain Church in San Diego. Uh, I tell people we're just a cheap knockoff. Uh, but uh, uh, Dr. Jeremiah actually next Sunday celebrates his 40th anniversary of shepherding that congregation. He's one of my favorite pastors and authors. Dr. Jeremiah shared this personal account of what it means to reverse anger using kindness. He said, it was a busy day. I had to eat lunch on the run. So I drove up to the drive through window of a local fast food restaurant. I suppose I had my mind on my order, and I didn't see the woman who was approaching the line of cars from the other direction. Apparently, I cut, her, I cut off her intended route. It was completely unintentional. I didn't see her, but she didn't see it that way. She was furious. This woman rolled down her window and gave me a piece of her mind. Actually, more than one piece. She served me a second helping. She shouted some obscenities I hadn't heard in a long time. She used hand gestures. She hawked her horn. It was a multimedia presentation, to say the least. One of the most detailed dispersals of anger I had ever seen. And by the time her volcano was out of molten lava, there she was behind me in line. And we were both waiting for lunch. I admit that I reached over and locked my doors. <laughs> but I also had an idea. As I was getting my food, I asked for the total bill for the woman behind me. Because she had already ordered through the speaker system. The waitress in the window asked, uh, is she related to you? I said, certainly not. Um, <laughs> that thought sent a cold chill up my spine. But still, I said, I'd like to pay for her dinner. Well, that's really nice, said the drive through waitress. So I paid for both of us. I confess that I couldn't help but wait around and adjust my rearview mirror because I wanted to see this woman's response. She was in total shock. It was as if she had seen the supernatural. And maybe she had. She had just attacked some stranger with all her claws, and he had just bought her lunch. It was a full-scale reversal. That is so cool. There's a second assignment here, and that is to be compassionate. To be compassionate. Verse 32 continues. Be kind to one another, and then second, tender-hearted. Tender-hearted means compassionate. Compassion 
We have all felt a sense of compassion. Compassion is that gnawing psychosomatic pain we feel on the inside because we're being sympathetic and empathetic about someone's unfortunate need or situation. God has not called us to be cold, hard, indifferent, calloused, and insensitive people. Instead, we should pray this prayer. Dear God, break my heart. Break my heart with the things that break yours. Let me cite a recent example of compassion in action. This is probably familiar. Compassion starts on the inside and then works itself to the outside. Most of us are aware of the debacle that has been in exiting Afghanistan. The president has called it an extraordinary success. The families of those 13 servicemen and women who died in that terrorist suicide bombing at the Kabul airport would strongly disagree with that assessment. And most of them have, using some strong and imprecatory language, describing the president's incompetence and unacceptable actions. There's a group of highly trained retired special operations veterans, including retired Green Berets and SEAL Team commanders and others that have banded together as a task force called the Pineapple Express. Those men volunteered to, in the darkness of the night, dodge heavily material, uh, militarized Taliban checkpoints to smuggle people through to the airport using images of pineapples on their phones so as to identify themselves to one another. Most of these men had never met before this operation and together these men have brought out Americans, Afghan Special Forces soldiers, Afghan government personnel and other foreign national nationals. Someone has estimated more than 1,000 of them have escaped the Taliban because of the efforts of this team. Jason Redmond, a Navy SEAL veteran who worked as a part of that task force, Pineapple Express, said he had been frustrated, quote, frustrated that our own government didn't do this. So we did what we felt we should do as Americans. That's compassion in action. And we should thank God for those courageous men. And then there's a third assignment, and that is to be forgiving. Forgiving, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, and then third, forgiving one another, even, even has God in Christ forgave you. To forgive one another means to completely release someone of an offense or a wrong, that has been committed against us. And please notice something. We are to forgive others because, because God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, has first forgiven us. We have been forgiven, so we are to pass it forward, pass on that forgiveness to someone else. Probably most of us have heard that we are to forgive and then to forget. We've all heard that or said that ourselves. Forgive and then forget. On the surface, though, that seems nonsensical since it is so difficult to forget an offense or hurt. We need to understand what that means. 
In most cases, unless there has been severe brain trauma or dementia or Alzheimer's, it is not possible to actually forget that someone has offended us someone has wronged us and besides if we have forgotten that someone else might bring it up in our presence don't miss this in this case to forget technically means to remember to forget in this case technically means to remember to forgive and then forget means that if someone's sin or offense against us comes to mind then we are to instantly remember that we have already forgiven them. If someone or Satan himself mentions an offense that was committed against us, then we are to forgive that offender and then forget that offense. Forgetting meaning to remember we forgave that person of the wrong committed against us. To forget doesn't mean to literally forget that offense actually happened, but it means to remember the decision we made to forgive that offense. If we remember a wrong, then we must also remember how we address that wrong in forgiveness. I heard a Christian counselor once that used an analogy from uh, old-time westerns that featured the good guy, they carried two guns, one gun on each hip. And if this hero, most often he wore a white hat, not sure why, if this hero was caught in a shootout, then he would draw both guns simultaneously with lightning speed, and he would win the gunfight. That's how it happens in movies, you know. This counselor said, in an analogous sense, we are each equipped with two guns. If we meet someone that has wronged us, offended us in the past, then one gun represents the memories of what that person did to us. And then the other gun represents how we forgave that person of that offense. This man said the secret is to draw both guns at the same time. Pull them, shoot them, simultaneously. It is so important that if we meet someone that has offended us that we don't just draw the one gun that represents that offense. But at the same time, simultaneous to that, we must also draw the second gun that represents our forgiveness. The Chinese government is a communist, atheistic regime. And for some strange reason, our politicians don't seem to understand that. The communist Chinese government published a high school textbook about ethics. This is a book about ethics. That textbook included a revised version of the account of Jesus and the woman called in adultery from John chapter 8. Now in the actual authentic biblical account Jesus, this woman had been called in adultery and she was brought in and just put in front of him. Jesus said to those religious hypocrites standing there, those scribes and Pharisees, that wanted to stone that adulterous woman, Jesus said to them, let him who is without sin, let him cast a stone at her first. 
And then Jesus, remember, went on to forgive this woman. Told her not to sin again in that sense, but he forgave this woman. Now in the communist revision of that account, Jesus said to those religious men that the Mosaic law must be enforced. And so then Jesus proceeded to stone this woman to death himself. See, communism doesn't teach forgiveness. And neither does cancel culture. And communism and cancel culture are related. This is the age of cancel culture. Cancel culture is the modern societal attitude that controversial speech and or controversial behavior must be punished through public shaming, silencing, being banned, boycotted, forced resignations and firings, deplatforming, demonetizing, and whatever ever other severe consequences seem appropriate to them. The result is that the offending person's presence is completely removed or canceled out. Big tech is a gigantic piece of cancel culture. So I am disappointed that to date, None of my sermon videos have been removed from the internet. I don't understand. I feel backslidden. I've got to make some kind of changes. Why, why are my stuff all up there still? I don't get it. Um, so I'm going to work harder at that, just so you know. Now, don't misunderstand this. Sometimes I believe it is absolutely necessary to act as a whistleblower and expose corruption and expose illegalities, and expose abuse, and especially sexual abuse that is so common now. And then to confront that person that is guilty of those things, and or call the authorities on that person, contingent on the offense. That, that is appropriate. But cancel culture goes past all that. Let me mention four biblical problems I see in cancel culture. Four problems. One, cancel culture is impulsive. Impulsive. Cancel culture doesn't care about investigating the possible wrongful act. Cancel culture doesn't care about the presumption of innocence. Presumption of innocence meaning that someone is presumed innocent until proven guilty. Cancel culture doesn't care about due process. Cancel culture is about rash and snap judgments and immediate outrage. It is most often based on misinformation and or partial information. Proverbs 18 verse 13, He who answers a matter before he hears it, that's cancel culture. It is folly and shame to him. So cancer culture is impulsive and uninhibited and reckless and irresponsible, often condemning innocent people. Second, cancel culture is hateful, hateful. It's interesting to hear all the obscene and ugly language these cancel culture warriors use. These people seem to have limited vocabularies. And instead of presenting thoughtful argumentation about a controversial matter, it is a constant resort. If someone doesn't have thought-provoking argumentation, uh, it's a constant resort to name-calling. Just call the opponent a name. Racist 
is the most often used name of derision. I mean, that's racist. You're a racist. Listen, if everything is racist, then nothing is racist. And that's a distraction from addressing the real and serious present problem of racism. But it happens. Colossians 4 verse 6, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt. Now, that doesn't mean use salty language. Don't, don't misunderstand. No, just as salt adds taste to food, it means use tasteful language so that you may know how to answer each one. I just read where a college professor of psychology at Duquesne University Duquesne University is a private Catholic university located in Pittsburgh, 9,000 plus students. And so this is from a Catholic professor. A Catholic professor at that school named Derrick Hook has defended a quote from another professor that said, quote, white people should commit suicide as an ethical act and as an opportunity to castrate whiteness. Now, if that's not hatefulness, I've never seen hatefulness. I understand that this professor that made that statement is a white person himself. So I'm curious if he will practice what he preaches. I'm curious if he'll be first in the suicide line. I doubt it. Number three, cancel culture is judgmental judgmental. This cancel culture crowd wants to find fault in all of us. These people do copious research to find dirt on someone. It might be a controversial tweet or a questionable video and or auto, audio recording or a published article containing conservative content or a politically incorrect joke or an endorsement of someone unacceptable to them. That's the reason most big-name comedians now refuse to perform on college campuses because the, quote, woke students there judge their comedic materials unacceptable. According to cancel culture, free speech means you are free to speak if you agree with us. If not, then shut up and sit still. That's free speech. Matthew 7, verse 1, Jesus said, Judge not that you be not judged. Now, I spent an entire sermon on this in our series on misused and misunderstood biblical text. Most people misread that sentence to teach that Jesus told us not to judge. No, no, not at all. If we read the next four verses, we see Jesus was warning us about hypocritical judging. Jesus cautioned us about being concerned and upset about the splinter in our brother's eye, and we're standing here and have a two-by-four in our own eye. Hypocritical judgment was the judging Jesus told us not to do. That, though, seems to be the only judgment this cancel culture exercises. These people are unadulterated hypocrites. 
There is no cancel culture person on earth that can even stand up to his own scrutiny. In addition, I find all this focus on the negative causes cancel culture warriors to be the unhappiest and most miserable people on earth. Just negativity, negativity, negativity. I, it's sad. Number four, cancel culture is unforgiving. Unforgiving. This is the worst of the four cancel culture characteristics because it means there is no hope for offending parties. There's no room for remorse. There's no room for contrition and repentance and restoration and change and grace and forgiveness. And it doesn't matter how long ago the offense was committed. Someone could have committed the indiscretion as an immature adolescent. It doesn't matter though. It should still be held against him. Someone's cancellation is permanent. There are no second chances. Apologies, no matter how sincere, don't count. There's no learning from someone's mistakes. The goal is to smear and malign and silence and cancel the offending person. And people, that is a complete contradiction to the essence of Christianity. Colossians 3 verse 13, Forgiving one another... If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Cancel culture and Christianity are totally incompatible. Incompatible. Cancel culture sees people it disagrees with as unredeemable and deserving of hate. Christian culture sees no one as unredeemable. Through Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness and potential for personal change in all people because God's grace is greater than any sin. So there are no lost causes. In 1985, Mr. Anthony Ray Hinton was arrested for a crime he did not commit. He was wrongly charged with murdering two fast food restaurant managers in Birmingham, Alabama. It was a classic case of mistaken identification. There was incontrovertible, incontrovertible physical evidence. He couldn't have been even near the crime scenes. But that didn't matter to the authorities. He spent the next three decades in prison on death row. I want us to watch a short video clip of an interview as he tells us about the beginning of the unbelievable injustice he experienced. It was impossible for me to watch this entire interview, part one and part two, without tearing up. I cried and I felt this sense of righteous rage inside me that our justice system could be so corrupt and so broken that this could happen to someone innocent and as late as 1985. I want us to see this video. 
Can you imagine spending 30 years on death row and then coming out and writing a New York Times bestseller? I'm here with author Anthony Ray Hinn. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I got to tell you, and we've been talking b before this, I don't think, no, I know I haven't, this is the best book I've read all year. Thank you so much. Um, and and it's, it's riveting, so I would tell anybody to pick it up. Um, can we go back here a little bit, and then I want to move forward with a lot of stuff, but can we go back to July 31st, 1985? Um, what you mentioned on page number one here, I mean, you just start us off, off the bat here, which is kind of interesting, where you say this, there's no way to know the exact second your life changes forever. You can only begin to know that moment by looking in the rearview mirror. So can we go back and look at the rearview mirror here just briefly? What happened in July? Uh, uh, my church that I belong to, Shallow Baptist Church, we was going to have starting revival. And it was one of the hottest days, I believe, in Alabama yeah. uh, in July. And like any other day, you get up and you're not thinking about going to jail. You're not thinking about anything. It's a normal uh, day. Just a normal day. And I uh, got up in the evening and I went in the house to get some lemonade. And my mom asked me, was I going to revive? And I said, yes, ma'am. Got my lemonade, went on the outside. Fifteen minutes later, I bring the, lim the empty glass back in the house. And she said, what time revival start? And I said, seven o'clock, mama. And she looked at me and she said, well, you got time to go out there and cut that grass. I dropped my head and I gave her that baby look. And I said, mama, I promise you I'll cut that grass tomorrow. And my mom looked at me and she said, I'm trying my best to see how did you get you'll cut the grass tomorrow out of me telling you to go cut the grass. <laughs> and she gave me that look only she could give me. And yeah. outside I went and I fired the lawnmower up about 20, 25 minutes into cutting the grass. I just happened to look up and there stood two white gentlemen that I'd never seen before. And I cut the lawnmower off and I asked them, can I help you? And they said, yes, we're looking for Anthony Ray Hinton. I said, that would be me again. How can I help you? And one of them identified themselves as a detective from the Bessemer Police Department. Mm -hmm. And they told me they had a warrant for my arrest. And I said, for what? And they said, we'll explain that to you later. Right now, we want you to put your hands behind your back. And I complied. And after they put the handcuff on me, 30 years later, uh, it's a nightmare. Huh. Uh, I mean, uh, a nightmare. And when I finally uh, realized that on my way to jail, I kept asking them what was I being arrested for. And they never would tell me. And so I kept asking them. And finally, the last time I asked them, it seemed to piss the one off that wasn't driving. Excuse yeah. me. But he turned around and he said, you want to know why you're being arrested? I said, yes. And he said, we're arresting you for first-degree robbery, first-degree kidnap, first-degree attempted murder. And I said, I ain't done none of that. And he shot it. Let me tell you something right now. I don't care whether you did it or didn't do it, but I'm going to make sure you found guilt of it. And I said, for a crime I didn't commit, he said, you must have a hearing problem. Didn't I just tell you I don't care whether you did it or didn't do it? He said, but don't you forget this. I'm going to make sure you found guilt of it. And as they drove just a little further, if he turned around and he said, by the way, there's five things that are going to convict you. Would you like to know what they are? And I said, yes. He said, number one, you're black. 
Number two, a white man is going to say you shot him. Whether you shot him or not, he said, I don't care. Mm. Believe me, I don't care. He said, number three, you're going to have a white prosecutor. Number four, you're going to have a white judge. And number five, you're going to have an all-white jury. And he said, do you know what that spelled? And he said the word conviction five times. Wow. Conviction, 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 conviction. And I dropped my head. And finally we got to the police station and they put me in this room for about two hours and then he came in and I said, Detective, what date and time does this alleged crime take place? If you don't mind telling me. He goes in his folder and he looking and he tells me a date and a time. And I said, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I did. I said, thank you, Jesus. I said, my supervisor is white. He could tell you I was at work that particular day in that particular time. Yeah. I felt so relieved because I figured he would go and talk to my white supervisor. It's pretty simple. Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, oh, all yes. they do is do a, a little, bit, little bit of digging. And you mentioned your white supervisor just basically because back in that day and time, the white man, for the most part, would have got you off. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and it goes and he tell them I was at work. They comes back about four and a half hours later. And he said, I have good news and bad news. And he said, the good news is we no longer going to charge you with first-degree robbery, first-degree kidnap, first-degree attempted murder. Wow. But we have decided, now who we is, we have decided that we're going to charge you with two counts of first-degree capital murder. I said, capital murder? I said, but I haven't killed anyone. Yeah. He said, didn't I tell you on the way here that I didn't care whether you did it or didn't do it? That stills apply. Mm. And as we were sitting there talking, I said, but detective, I could never take a life. I said, I can't give a life back. I could never take a life. He looked at me and he said, I'm going to tell you something. I truly believe you didn't do it. He said, but y'all is always taking up from one another. And the y'all. Yeah. He said, take this yeah. rap for your homeboy. And with tears coming down my eyes, I said, detective, I don't have a homeboy in this world that I would take a rap for like this. Mr. Hinton was incarcerated in a fall small five feet by seven foot cell alone that entire time, three decades. He spent much of his time in prison reading and he organized a book club that was permitted to meet in the law library. Two of the first members of that club that Mr. Hinton befriended had been former KKK members. But over time, that club that had become popular lost members as more and more members were executed. Remember, this is on death row. A total of 54 convicted inmates walked past his cell to their death. Hinton would sit in his cell and he could smell burning flesh from the electric chair since his cell was just 30 feet from that execution room. During his time in prison, he became known as the chaplain of death row because he spent so much time ministering to those men that were there just waiting to die. 
After Hinton had been on death row about a decade, a brilliant attorney named Brian Stevenson from the nonprofit organization called the Equal Justice Initiative agreed to investigate his case. He did so. He was convinced he was an innocent man, and he handled his defense for 16 years. His tireless efforts ultimately paid off as the United States Supreme Court in 2014 vacated the state court's conviction that started a series of legal decisions to drop all charges against him. So on April 3rd, 2015, Mr. Anthony Ray Hinton became the 152nd person since 1973 to be exonerated from death row in the United States. He was a free man, but he was freed without apologies and or compensation from the government that had stolen three decades of his time on this earth. But Mr. Hinton refused to be bitter about that, and he has forgiven all of those that have wronged him. He said, quote, I can forgive because I have a God that forgives. That's the secret. Let's bow our heads. <clears throat> Father, we've heard what we're to do about irresponsible anger, unjustifiable anger, anger that includes sin. And forgiveness is a part of that. That's one of the things we're to do. We're to reverse it. Curse it and then reverse it. And God, we've all been offended. We've all been wronged. Help us to learn from Mr. Hinton. If any man should be bitter and angry and upset and resentful, it should be him, but he's not. He's not. And only you can do that in someone. Father, I thank you for what we've learned today. I hope it'll make a difference in each of us. Help us not to forget these lessons because they're so relevant. They apply to every one of us probably almost every single day. So thank you for your word. Continue to use it, I pray, in us. And I ask it all in the special name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.